Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
This morning we sang In Christ Alone. Hopefully you're familiar with the five mottos of the Protestant Reformation. In Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, through the scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Here at GCA, we put a great deal of emphasis on in scripture alone. Week by week, I keep pounding away at the scripture because it is only through understanding what the Bible says that you can have any real hope in this seemingly God-forsaken and crazy world. But we don't just put that emphasis on scripture as an intellectual exercise. Several places in the Bible also emphasize the importance of scripture, like what we're going to begin with this morning. John obviously is considered a prophet. Throughout the Old Testament, there were prophets. How did they prophesy? How did they know the future so accurately? How could they claim to be speaking for God? If you would, Tom, look up 2 Peter 1, and you're going to read verses 19 and 20 for us. Because what the scripture says about itself over and over is that it is the very word of God. And then it sets about to prove that it is the very word of God by telling you things you couldn't possibly know any other way than to have them revealed to you from God through his prophets via the word of God. The Bible also proves that it is the word of God by the fact that it prophesies the future before it happens, and then God challenges you to go ahead and check it, because the history of the world proves and demonstrates that this is the very word of God, because it has a perfect batting average going so far. What it prophesies actually comes to pass. That is one of the reasons, by the way, that we approach the book of Revelation the way that we do. Every prophecy that has been fulfilled so far in human history actually came to its fruition in a very literal, genuine, historic, physical way here on planet Earth. And so we have to conclude that the rest of the prophecies in the Bible will also happen in a very literal, genuine, historic way. And that's why we approach the book of Revelation the way we do. So how does John know these things that are going to happen in the future? Well, because God told him. And we're going to see that demonstrated this morning. But Peter argues that that's the way all the prophets have always worked, they have always spoken the word of God by God himself, and none of them were just making up things off the top of their head. In fact, what Peter is going to argue is that it is God himself who is making sure that his prophets say what he wants his people to hear because it is 100% trustworthy because it is the very word of God. And those are the words that are written down in our Bible. And that's why we continue to approach the Bible in a very literal, genuine, historic fashion. Because that is the way that it talks about itself 
For instance, Tom is now going to read 2 Peter 1, verses 19 and 20, which say, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Did I just interrupt you? And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Peter's argument here is because Jesus has come to the planet and because all the prophets have predicted that Jesus was going to come to the planet and then Jesus actually arrived and fulfilled prophecy in his life and his miracles and his death and his resurrection because Christ fully accomplished all those things the prophets had already predicted, Peter could look back at it and say, see, the word of prophecy is validated by the fact that Jesus came and did what the prophet said about him. Continue to read. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. To which you will do well to pay attention. That's one of the reasons we do this at GCA. Because Peter just said, we have surety in the word of God, and therefore we do well to pay attention to it. Did I interrupt you again? No. (laughs) Read it again. You will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No word of prophecy comes from someone's private interpretation. Why are you sitting down? Read the next sentence. Where did it come from then? For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's how come prophecy is so accurate. It comes from the Spirit of God speaking through his prophets. Therefore, you can rely on the prophecies in the Bible to actually come true, quite literally, in time and history, because it is the very word of God that continues to validate itself by the fact not only that Jesus came, but that every other Old Testament prophecy and many of the New Testament prophecies that have ever happened in history so far all happened accurately, exactly like the Bible said they were going to happen. Therefore, we can have tremendous confidence in the Word of God and its prophetic voice. That's what the Bible says about itself. And then it proves itself. And that's why we continue to read the Word of God week by week for 21 years now Because I just can't tell you anything more important in your lifetime than what the Word of God has to say to you. Everywhere else you go, turn on the news, turn on the internet, everywhere you go, you got a radio on in the car, everywhere you go, everything you do, there are people talking to you, usually talking at you. There are people who will tell you not only what happened, but what you ought to think about it. No longer in schools are they teaching kids how to think, They're now telling them what to think. Only in the word of God. That's the only time that you're reading the word that does not change. The substance of God that has carried people generation by generation 
from this lifetime all the way to their heavenly destiny. This is the only thing that is true and accurate and proves itself and doesn't change. And everything else in the world is malleable. Everything else in the world changes and you cannot count on it. And it is coming at you nonstop, constantly, a barrage of information and talking and nonsense. Let's say day before yesterday. Anybody hear the news day before yesterday? Mm-hmm. Anybody read a news site day before yesterday? Yep. Yeah, what happened? Um. We don't remember. You know why we don't remember? Because the news cycle changes every two hours. And suddenly there's another story and another story and another story. And we read those stories and we think, okay, now this seems significant. 48 hours later, you don't remember it. Because there's another news cycle and another story and another thing. You know what happens every time you read the Bible? It says the same thing it said last time you read the Bible. And the truth of God's word and the unchangeableness of God's word will carry you through this constantly changing world. And that's why we keep emphasizing the word of God. Now, I said all that to say we're in Revelation 10 this morning. And we're going to see an example of how God takes credit for what it is that John is prophesying. John is going to have to prophesy again, as if the first half of this book wasn't enough. He's going to have to prophesy again, and before he does it, God gives him the very words he's going to speak. But that is not new or unique to John. We're also going to see that that is the way that God dealt with Old Testament prophets. So let's start reading Revelation 10, starting at verse 1. Revelation 10, verse 1. And I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, And his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, which was open. And he placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. And when the seven peals of thunder had spoken... I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. That is one of the most significant descriptions of God that you will find all the way through the Bible. God himself identifies himself as the maker of heaven and earth. When you think about God, who God is, what God is like, the first thing that ought to pop up in your mind, the preeminent thing you need to know about him, is that everything, including you, was made by him. Everything you see, everything you experience, everything in this world, 
everything was made by him and for him. Through him all things consist and have their being. Everything continues because of him. Even time itself exists because God created it. He created time and everything that happens in time. He created the heavens and all the things that are in the heavens. Now, that can be the heaven where God sits, in which case he made all the angels. These are created beings, the armies of heaven. He created all of them. The fallen angels, the demons, he created all them. They're under his control. Some angels, according to Paul, are the elect angels. Some angels are the fallen angels. And God is going to deal with every single one of them ultimately because he created them. He can do whatever he wants with them. He's the one who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it. So he not only created the earth, but everything on the earth, everything in the earth. He created all of it. That is definitional to who God is. And he created the sea and all the things that are in it. All the fish, all of the things we have never seen. I'm always fascinated when explorers go down into the depths of places like the Marianas Trench and they find creatures down there they've never seen before. There's a creature deep, deep down in the ocean that actually glows in the dark. What is that about? We just recently found him. He's been down there glowing his little brains out and God was the only one who ever got to see him. God was the only one who ever got to appreciate him. But you know what? There are whole galaxies, there are whole universes that we've never found that we don't know anything about. God knows them. God sees them. God knows them by name. They're there for God's good glory. He has created the universe and everything in it down to the minutest detail for his own glory and for his own pleasure. And you're just part of that grand creation of God, and that is definitional to who God is. He is the one who not only lives forever and ever, which means he's been alive since eternity past. As far back as you can think, God has existed. As far forward as you can think, God has always existed. He's the one who lives forever and ever. He created heaven and the things in it. He created the earth and the things in it. He created the sea and the things in it. And the angel raises his right hand and swears by that one. Once you get some sense of who God really is, and then his angel, his messenger, speaks for him and makes a declaration by raising his hand to that God and making a declaration, that's got to be a very important declaration. And the declaration is, there's no more delay. God is about to start pouring out the really bad stuff. It's been bad so far. We've already seen that half the human population has been wiped out by this point. And yet the angel says there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound... Then the mystery of God is finished. It's completed as he preached to his servants, the prophets. So what is John saying? He's saying the prophets of God, the prophets in the Old Testament, not only prophesied that Christ was going to come, but they all prophesy 
this end of the world scenario. They've all prophesied and given us information about God ultimately defending his own righteousness in judgment against this sin-soaked world. And that's been prophesied for thousands of years, and it's finally going to come to pass when the seventh angel sounds. By the way, in chapter 11, verse 15, we read, And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven. So the angel is just about to sound, and before he does, a strong angel with his feet on the sea and on the land swears by God that when he sounds his trumpet, the end of everything the prophets have said is all going to come to its fruition, which is why the balance up until Revelation 20, the balance of Revelation is all describing this time that we know as the day of the Lord, this time of utter trouble and destruction from God as he pours out judgment in a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, which means everything that has happened up until this point in the book of Revelation is winding up and preparing us for the seventh trumpet and the pouring out of God's wrath. In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel which stands on the sea and on the land. A moment ago, John told us that there was a book in his hand, but the book was open. The book wasn't sealed. It was a scroll that he was holding in his hand. And now a voice tells John, you see that magnificent angel? You see that one that's standing with his feet on the land and sea? Go approach him. I don't know that I'd be agreeable to that. Have you seen him? Go approach him and go take that scroll out of his hand. This is almost reminiscent of what we read earlier in the book of Revelation, that no one could approach the sealed scroll that was in the hand of God. But then it was the lamb who looked as though he had been slain, this lamb with seven eyes. He was the only one who was worthy to approach God and to open those seven seals. And there was celebration in heaven over the fact that that lamb was worthy. And they bowed and they worshipped his worthiness. Okay, John's aware of all that. And now he's being told, approach that angel and go ahead and take that scroll. And a voice that I heard from heaven I heard again speaking to me and saying, go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel, which stands on the sea and on the land. And I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it. And it will make your stomach upset, bitter. But in your mouth... It'll be sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. And it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again 
concerning many peoples, many nations, many tongues, and many kings. Before John was allowed to prophesy again, first he had to ingest the word of God that was written down before him. I want to emphasize again, the Bible, the very word of God, is not something that we just lightly snack on. It's not something that you read the way you read, say, a novel. Has anybody in this room ever read a book? Once you've read that book, if someone else asks if they can borrow that book, you'll usually say, yeah, you can have it. And why are you willing to let it go? It's because you've read it. But the Bible alone, the Bible uniquely, because it is the word of God, is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's what the writer of Hebrews says about it. And because it is the very word of God, you can go back and read it and read it and read it and read it, and every time it'll come back new to you. Every time you read it, you'll find things in it where you think, I doubt couldn't have been there last time. I would have noticed it. But sure enough, the Bible keeps feeding your spirit, feeding your soul, giving you reassurance. Have you ever heard the phrase, you are what you eat? That's essentially true. And so you're to eat the word of God. You're to ingest the word of God. You're to take it in and let it be part of you. It is to flow in and out of you. And you can't say that about any other writing. You can't say that about any other book. This is a book not only about your life, this is a book that is your life. And you can't say that about any other book. Okay, so John is going to have to prophesy this time. He's going to say things about different people groups and different nations and tongues and kings And before he can go and say these things, first he has to ingest the next word of prophecy that God is giving him. This is why I had Tom begin by reading what Peter said, that no word of prophecy is by any man's imagination. Nobody just came up with it, but the prophets were carried along by the Spirit of God. That's why they have that amazing accuracy to them. But that is also why the words that we find on the page of Holy Writ are completely trustworthy because they come directly from God. And that is demonstrated by John being given a scroll from an angel of God and told, eat it. But once you've eaten it, once it tastes good in your mouth and you swallow it, it's going to make you sick to your stomach because it's really tough news. Now, this is not unique to John. Anybody in the first century who's reading this letter from John, their mind is immediately going to go back to Ezekiel because Ezekiel went through this exact same process. So turn to Ezekiel chapter 3. We're going to read a big chunk of Ezekiel chapter 3 here. By the way, this is the same Ezekiel who's told things like in chapter 2, starting at verse 3, Son of man, I'm sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. And I'm sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children. And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. And as for them... Whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, 
they will know that a prophet has been among them. I don't kid myself into believing that everybody who hears my preaching is going to comprehend it and understand it. I have critics out there on the internet who will regularly write to me to tell me how wrong I am. Atheists, cynics who want to tell me how wrong I am. And if I were more sensitive to them, it would really make me feel bad that I keep standing here saying the same things over and over and that they keep telling me how wrong I am. But I like the fact that God told Ezekiel, you go preach my word, and they are obstinate people. And whether they hear it or not, go tell it. Because at some point, they're going to have to admit that they heard it. At some point, they're going to have to admit, in Ezekiel's case, that there was a prophet among them. And then God goes on and says, And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words, though thistles and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, ouch, neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. I think that that passage of Ezekiel is as pertinent today as it's ever been. There's a whole world out there that doesn't want to hear the word of God, and yet God says, don't back off just because they won't hear it. Instead, say it and say it and say it and say it, even though they're stubborn, even though they're obstinate, you keep preaching my word. Okay, that was the introduction to chapter 3. I'm going to now start reading in Ezekiel chapter 3. We're going to read 11 verses here. He said to me, son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. Does that sound familiar? exactly what John is told except that John is told he's going to go preach to the Gentiles he's going to go preach to the nations but before Ezekiel is commissioned to go and preach judgment to Israel first Ezekiel has to eat the word of God he has to ingest it before he can tell it and he said to me son of man eat what you find eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me this scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach, and fill your body with this scroll, which I am giving you. I love that phraseology. Fill your body with my word. That's why I said you have to ingest it. It's not just a passing fancy. It's not something you're just snacking on. What you eat is what you become. Eat the word of God. Ingest the word of God. Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. And then I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Sound familiar? And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. Again, I have to appreciate that Ezekiel is told don't go to Israel and make up stuff. Don't go to Israel and give them your opinion. Far too much of the preaching I hear these days is just made up stuff that is opinions of men. There's a big difference, let me point out. There's a big difference between preaching and talking. 
Everybody in this room knows how to talk. But unless you're concentrating on the word of God, you're not actually preaching. You have to declare the word of God to qualify as biblical preaching. He said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or a different language. You're going to the house of Israel, nor to many peoples of unintelligible speech or difficult language whose words you cannot understand. But I have sent you to them who should listen to you. In other words, God is saying, you're going to speak in plain Hebrew. You're going to speak to them their mother tongue. You're going to talk to them in the language they speak, and you're going to use words that are familiar to them. They should be able to understand you, and yet they are obstinate and rebellious, and they're not going to listen to you. But I have sent you to them who should listen to you. Verse 7, and yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, since they are not willing to listen to me. When you're talking to your friends, when you're talking to your family, when you're talking to your loved ones, have you ever spoken to somebody who just doesn't want to hear it? Well, it's easy to feel rejected when that happens. But God takes it personally and says, the reason they won't listen to you is because they won't listen to me. That's been the case ever since God started talking to people. The house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you since they are not willing to listen to me. Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. And behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. In other words, I'm going to make my prophet able to withstand the obstinacy, the stubbornness of the people you're going to speak to. So don't let the fact that they are hard-headed, don't let the fact that they have these foreheads that are as hard as flint, don't let that persuade you not to preach my word. You go and tell them anyway, and I'll make your forehead as hard as their forehead. Like emery, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them or be dismayed before them, though they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, take into your heart all my words, which I shall speak to you, and pay attention to them. Listen closely to them, and go to the exiles and to the sons of your people, and speak to them and tell them, whether they listen or not, thus says the Lord God. This is the way God works with his prophets. He doesn't leave it up to them. He instead gives them his word. They are to ingest his word. And then they are to speak his word, whether the people will listen to it or not. And there certainly seems to be a dearth of the word of God in most pulpits these days. Because they have learned that people won't sit still for the word of God. So instead they'll entertain. And next thing you know, you got rock bands and smoke machines and dancing girls and 
stick ministries and mime ministries and all the all the stuff, all the falderall that is meant to entertain people rather than just give them a steady diet of the word of God. In other words, the so-called prophets of God that are standing in pulpits these days, rather than telling the word of God whether they will hear it or not, have turned away from the word of God in favor of entertainment in order to keep people. And the direction from God is, don't do that. Keep saying my word whether they'll listen to it or not. Why? Because just like Tom read for us, because it is the very word of God via his Holy Spirit given to the prophets he has chosen and it is the verifiable, provable word of God. Keep advancing that. Keep telling that. Keep preaching that because that is life. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, your words were found and I ate them. Here's another demonstration of another prophet from the Old Testament who likens his uptake of the word of God to, in fact, ingesting the word of God. He uses that word, eat it. I ate the word of God. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me joy and gladness in my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Yahweh, God of hosts. Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The language of tasting and eating is really vital to our approach to the word of God. We have to take it in. We have to let it be part of us. John 4 After Jesus was talking to the woman by the well, the Samaritan woman, his disciples catch up with him after they had gone into the city to get some food. John 4, starting at verse 31, says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat something. They meant you're probably hungry by now. You haven't eaten in a while. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So the disciples were saying to one another, Did anybody bring him something to eat? Were we just not aware of it? And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So this language of food, this language of eating in the word of God, about the word of God, is consistent. Jesus uses it. The prophets use it. It's important to know that it's not enough to just read the word of God the way you would read yet another novel or another book. It is vital to your understanding of who you are, who God is, and how you can bridge that gap between your sinfulness and God's holiness. And the only answer that the Bible keeps giving you over and over again is Christ. And you're not going to know that unless you're eating the word of God. In Matthew 4, you know this story. This is Jesus after being in the wilderness. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. This is Matthew 4, the first four verses. After he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Boy, there's an understatement. Anybody here tried 40 days and nights of not eating? If I skip an afternoon, I'm a tad peckish. 
I'm looking for something to eat. Forty days and forty nights. And he became hungry. So the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. There is Jesus again likening eating food to eating the word of God. And life is not preserved simply by bread. According to Jesus, your life is preserved by every word of God, which you can only find here in the Bible. That's pretty good authority. If Jesus says that every word of God is your nutrition, you're not going to get better advice than that. Finally, Psalm 19, I'm going to read verses 7 to 10. This is David extolling the law of God, and he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much gold, and they are sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of a honeycomb. Both Ezekiel and John said, when they ingested the scroll of God's word, it was like honey in their mouth. So this language again is consistent. The word of God, as you ingest it, is sweet in your mouth. But have you ever been convicted by the Word of God? Have you ever been reading the Word of God and thought, Uh-oh, he's talking about me, and he knows me way too well. Ever had that experience? Sometimes the Word of God gets a little bitter in your stomach. Sometimes the Word of God, in doing its work, in conforming you and changing you and making you like the image of the Son of God, is going to cut away at you. And sometimes that is not pleasant, and yet it is the honeycomb of the word of God. All right. I said all that so that we could continue in the book of Revelation. I'm back in Revelation 10. Verse 8, I heard again speaking with me, that voice saying, go take the book that is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. And when I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book, And I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. Just like David said. Just like Ezekiel experienced. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand, and I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, My stomach was made bitter, and they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples, nations, and tongues, and kings. Chapter 11. And there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. This 
word that is translated temple of God here is naos. It means the sanctuary, the particular part of the temple where the worship of God is taking place, the sanctuary of God. That would include the holiest place. That would include the inner place. But he's also told to leave out part of it, part of the temple that Solomon built included what was known as the court of the Gentiles. That was where the God-fearers could come to worship, but they weren't allowed to get any closer than the court of the Gentiles. Only the Israelites were allowed into the main sanctuary area, and only the high priest was allowed into the holiest place, and he was only allowed once a year. So you've got the holiest of holies, then you have the outer tent of meeting area, then you've got the court of the Jews and the Israelites, and then you have the court of the Gentiles. And so John is told, rise and measure the sanctuary of God and the altar, where the worship of God takes place, and those who are worshiping in it, and leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it is given to the Gentiles. And they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. How long is that? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. Look at verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. How long is that? Three and a half years, 42 months. Again, John is talking mathematically. We're now talking about the three and a half years that make up this really bad end of Daniel's time of tribulation, such as never was or ever would be again. Leave out, ekbalo. Literally, it means to eject it or throw it out. Why is John told to throw out the court of the Gentiles? Because the court of the Gentiles is going to be trampled underfoot 42 months. Obviously, then, he is not talking about something that has happened historically. He's talking about something that is going to happen in the future. Is there a temple in Jerusalem right now? No. In the weeks to come, we are going to have to spend some significant time in the book of Daniel because the two witnesses who I just spoke of are going to be killed by the beast John is just going to use that language, the beast. And so we got to know who the beast is. And in order to understand that, we're going to have to go back and look at the book of Daniel. And Daniel is going to fill in some of these gaps for us, including the fact that this beast character, who goes by the nickname Antichrist sometimes, this character is going to stand in the temple Showing himself that he is God. Okay, well, there's no temple over there. One of the things that Daniel is going to tell us is just like the decree from Cyrus and then from Artaxerxes that established the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple, the last of the 70 weeks is going to begin when that decree is reestablished. Who's going to reestablish it? The beast. Okay, all of that has not happened yet. But given everything we know about the word of God, does it have to happen? Yes. Sure, it has to happen again. In other words, 
This temple that he's talking about is not a spiritual temple. By the way, you'll notice that the angel was standing with his feet on the land and on the sea. So he was on the earth, which places John on the earth. And then John is told to go and measure the temple. Obviously, it's an earthly temple because it has Gentiles around it. And the rebellious Gentiles are not around a heavenly temple. So we're talking about an earthly temple here that just simply doesn't exist yet. Still the abomination of desolation, according to Daniel, according to Jesus, according to Paul, that abomination, that beast is going to stand in that temple. And that is one of the significant events that brings about the final wrath of God. So why is he told to measure it? Most commentators think that the activity of measuring the temple is to make a distinction between what belongs to God and what's been given over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles, then, are going to surround the holy city. We're going to read more about that. They're going to fight against the holy city. We're going to read about that. It's going to look like they're going to overcome the holy city and then Jesus is going to return and just mop up the floor with them. We're going to read all of that in the book of Revelation. But what we know is John is given like a yardstick, a measuring rod, like a staff. And he's told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. So apparently that's the group that God is going to preserve. The same way that we have seen the judgment of God repeatedly while he preserves his own, the worshipers there in Jerusalem, the worshipers in the temple of God, those who are at the altar of God are apparently the protected class over against the court on the outside of the temple. Don't measure that. Apparently that's not going to be preserved. God is going to pour out his wrath on them because it's been given over to the Gentile nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. By the way, what's the holy city? That's going to keep coming up in the book of Revelation. What's the holy city? The place where God chose to place his name. It's obviously Jerusalem. So Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem are going to be trodden underfoot for 42 months. That's half of seven, and that helps us to understand Daniel's mathematics, which we will get into in the next couple of weeks. That is either at this moment making you say, oh good, I want to know about that, or you just decided to take the next few weeks off. (laughs) One of those two choices. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth and it's three minutes to twelve and that's technically when I'm supposed to stop but I didn't get to talk last week So if you'll give me 10 extra minutes, we can wrap this up. Notice the language of verse 4. These are the, almost like you would know who, who that is. 
These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. What in the world is John talking about? What is being explained to him with the language of these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth? Well, you have to know your Old Testament in order to know that because that exact language is in the book of Zechariah. So turn to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah, by the way, is the same Old Testament prophet who saw the four horsemen that John saw. When we were looking at the four horsemen at the beginning of the book of Revelation, we went back to Zechariah 1 to read about the four horsemen. So Zechariah and John have a lot in common. We're going to read from Zechariah chapter 4, starting at verse 1. It's not a long chapter, but I'm going to read the whole thing. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. In other words, Zechariah was just going about his day when suddenly he was aware and could see things he couldn't normally see. It was like he was being aroused from his slumber. And that angel said to me, what do you see? And he's seeing a vision. And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps, which are on the top of it. Also, two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl, and the other on the left side. In other words, this is what he's seeing. There are two olive trees. The two olive trees are pouring out their olive oil into a couple of gold tubes that are feeding a bowl that is collecting the olive oil. From that bowl, there are almost like straws feeding down into each of the individual flames that are burning to keep them burning. So the way that the candlestick that has seven lights on it, the way that it is continually burning, is that it is being fed olive oil from the two olive trees that are on either side of it. That's the vision that Zechariah is looking at. Then I answered and said to the angel who was speaking me, what are these, my Lord? Good question. What is it? What's the significance of it? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he answered and said to me, some commentators, by the way, say that this is the angel ignoring Zechariah's initial question and that he gets back to it later. I don't read it that way. I think the angel is answering Zechariah's question. Then he answered and he said to me, this is the word of Yahweh to Zerubbabel. Quick bit of Hebrew history here. Once the Jews were taken into Babylon... Babylon was then conquered by the Medo-Persians. Isaiah the prophet names Cyrus the Persian by name 150 years before he comes on the scene of human history. The significance of Cyrus is that he is the one who God is going to make allow the Jews to go back and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. So then during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, 
that's what you read. You read that they did return and start building the temple and the walls, but they met a great deal of opposition from the people who lived in that area who had gotten used to the previous 70 years when there were no Jews in the area of any significance. And so they were not happy to see Jerusalem and the temple being rebuilt. And so then God sends them leaders and Zerubbabel is one of those leaders. Zechariah is sent to prophesy to Zerubbabel to encourage Zerubbabel that this work is going to be completed. So Zerubbabel is like a governor among the Hebrews who have stopped the work of rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple and the prophet Zechariah has come to encourage Zerubbabel to keep the work going. So the angel who was speaking to me says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. In other words, you're not going to be able to do it under your own strength. Your enemies are going to conquer you if you keep going the way you're going. You have to recognize that it is by my strength. I'm the one who declared it. I'm the one who named Cyrus by name 150 years in advance. That's how sure and certain it is that my temple and my city is going to be rebuilt. It's not going to be rebuilt by might or by power, but by the Spirit of God himself. But by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone to the shouts of grace, grace to it. In other words, whatever is hindering you, whatever difficulties, whatever mountains are in your way, I'm going to flatten them out so that your way is going to be completed. And there's going to be shouts of grace, grace, glorifying the capstone when it is finally completed. Also, the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house and his hands will finish it. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hands of Zerubbabel. In other words, when they see the work continuing and Zerubbabel is in there with a plumb line getting ready to lay out the walls again. But he mentions these seven. What are these seven? These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth, the all-seeing, all-knowledgeable omnipresence of God. And then I answered and I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right side of the lampstand and on the left side? And I answered the second time and I said to him, what are these two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden from themselves? So he answered and he said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And he said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Revelation 11, verse 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the whole earth. So only if you know your Old Testament are you comfortable with what just happened to John. What just happened to John happened to Zechariah. Any thoroughgoing Jew who knew his Old Testament would recognize that these two witnesses, who we're going to talk about in greater length next week, these two witnesses 
are the two that stand before the very throne of God. These are the two that were seen by Zechariah. These are the two that are seen by John. So people are going to speculate. We're going to talk about it next week, about who these two are. Some people say it's Moses and Elijah. There's some evidence that maybe there is a connection there. But what the Bible tells us about these two witnesses is that they are two who stand before the God of the whole earth. It would be something if they are the final two witnesses on planet earth just before God pours out his judgment. And that is exactly what both Zechariah and John tell us about them. These are the two that stand before the Lord of the whole earth. The God who made heaven and earth. The God who made everything that is in the heavens, everything in the earth, everything in the sea. These two have been standing in front of them. And those two are going to come to the planet to testify about God to a stubborn, hard-hearted people who are not going to listen. Who have been told, go tell them anyway because whether they hear it or not, it's the word of God. Go say it. Pretty significant. But in order to continue talking about these two witnesses, like I said, we're going to have to talk about the beast that kills them. And that will take us back to the book of Daniel. And that is where we're headed next week. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.com. Org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.